Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, the 23rd of February, 2024, the last Friday in February. And of course, if it's Friday, it must be That Was The Week, our weekly show with my friend Keith Tier about the state of technology. Uh, we, Keith and I, can't stop thinking about tomorrow. Uh, that's the business of this show and the business of Silicon Valley. The real question is that when we think of tomorrow, there are two ways of thinking of it, either as a nightmare in dystopian terms or or alternatively as a utopia, uh, as a future where technology will solve all our big problems. And that is indeed the theme of this week's That Was The Week newsletter. Can't stop thinking about tomorrow. So Keith, uh, are we waking up in the middle of the night thinking about tomorrow in a cold sweat or are we excited about the promise? So, so our AI-generated human being there is meant to be excited. That's what my instruction was: make him look excited. Yeah, he, and he looks terrified. He I looks, mean, that's the nightmare of AIR is whatever you ask it to do, it does the opposite. But you know, the song "Can't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow." Is that the right words? I think that's the right words. And the next line is "Yesterday's Gone," and so "Yesterday's Gone" would almost be a better title this week. Because most of the, the most of the articles or essays in the newsletter uh, project forwards from today, what kind of a future we're looking at, and and um, they're, they're fairly substantive essays. Um, two of them are on the it's all going to be amazing side, and two of them are on the it's all going to hell side. Um, so it's it, it it was a split universe. Of course, I favor the first two more than the second two. Um, um, but but there you go. And and uh, the title took, you know, normally I spend a little bit of time on the title every week. This week I spent ages on the title. I couldn't figure out what it should be. And so I settled Did on it. Did you wake it. up in the middle of the night, Keith, with the title? Is that the face of you? Amazing. Eureka face, thinking I've found a title for this week. Well, I, I did have a weird dream last night. Oh, <clears> tell <throat> us more. The overarching theme of the dream was um, that I was going back to my hometown. Uh, That's a nightmare, Keith, isn't it? Yeah, simultaneously with the Reddit IPO. And it turned out one of my school friends was the main lawyer on the Reddit IPO. And my brother was speaking at TEDx Scarborough. It was a very weird dream. Right, so, is it truly? So you didn't you didn't dream about Manchester United's young striker getting injured for the rest of the year? I did not. Well, it, only for three games, apparently. Well, we'll see. So we can't stop thinking about tomorrow, Keith. Uh, as you note, a couple of the essays, interesting essays, all of them this week. One by Evan Armstrong suggests that um, the future is is not even AI. It's the virtual reality which Apple's Vision Pro is realizing. Tell us more about this essay. So he he uh, coins a phrase which is called uh, the killer utility as opposed to the killer app. 
And his entire essay is premised on the demand that the Vision Pro can only be successful if we can figure out what the killer app is. And the same with AI, probably the same with Web3, by the way, that we've talked about a lot. And he makes the point that there are some things where a killer app isn't required because the utility of the thing itself changes the game so profoundly that every app that used to exist on in the past has to migrate to this new utility. And he thinks the Vision Pro and AI are utilities in that sense. They're foundational and, and will replace previous foundations, at least in part. Well, let's... Um... Let's give credit where credit is due. The, the term killer app was popularized by my Berkeley friend, uh, Larry Downs, who had one of the first big tech hits in books in, uh, I think it's from about 19, uh, just 1999, 2000, unleashing the killer app. What exactly is a killer app, Keith? Because not all our audience are as yeah. technologically well, sophisticated as you. So um, I have a good friend who I haven't seen for years. If he ever listens to this, hi, Dan. His name is Dan Brinklin. And Dan created the first ever spreadsheet uh, for Windows. And it was deemed the killer app. It was before Lotus 123 and certainly before Excel. It was the first ever spreadsheet where you could program you know, numbers in cells and do calculations. And everybody wanted to get an IBM PC to use VisiCalc. Um, <clears throat> I think it was VisiCalc that he, he created with some other people. And so the killer app is, is something you want to use in software that compels you to buy the hardware or the platform. That's a killer app. And, you know, clearly I, I use Vision Pro. My yeah, you're you're one of Here the you're the classic code. early adapt. Whatever, if Apple came out with nappies or a, a diaper, Keith, I'm sure, and a digital diaper, you would buy it. Especially so, does this suggest that um, that the, the the Apple device, the Vision Pro, currently is kind of useless because there is no killer app? Well, his point's the opposite: that it doesn't need a killer app because it's so useful, and. Uh, like I'll tell you, last night uh, I had a bit of downtime while my wife was doing something before we settled down and binge watched some TV show. And I put the Vision Pro on and watched the IMAX trailer for the forthcoming Planet of the Apes movie. Oh um, my God, Keith! How old are you? And the IMAX. How movie, old are you? I, I'm. I'm. In, when it comes to movies, about twelve and a half. Yeah, but in real in real years, you're closer to seventy than sixty, right? We won't give away your complete age. I am. And very you're watching virtual reality uh, uh, movie trailers. But on but the key is on the IMAX app, and the IMAX app. The is that your excuse? Is that what makes it acceptable? Because it was on the IMAX app. Well, I I also watched a wonderfully narrated journey through the universe that nasa had done for imax and and, I, and why am i telling you this because my wife eventually came back in the room when we're going to now so i took the vision pro off we we have a pretty impressive tv projector on our living room wall it it felt so underwhelming compared to what was on the vision pro what does janae think when she leaves the room and then she comes back and you're wearing this clunky vision pro device doesn't she think it's a bit weird 
I always slip it off before she enters the room. So. Oh my God, we're going to quote you on that. I always <laughs> slip it off when she enters the room. But Jeanette, if you're watching, I don't know what you think about Keith's Vision Pro habit. But, uh, uh, but, the, but the point is, um, the, the entire platform gives you those kinds of feelings a lot across a, a range of different experiences. So I so I I agree with him that it doesn't need to kill a rap. I think so, it's. So, I mean, your your living room is is a tech paradise. You've got as big a television and sophisticated electronics as anyone. Are you saying that the Vision Pro is leaps and bounds beyond that? Leaps and bounds. It's not even close. I mean, the only limitation is that it's a singular experience just for one person, so you can't really use it in a social setting, but. For an individual experience of media, it it it, it How is. How big's your physical TV? Uh, about 120 inches. And does that make the 120 inch TV, the physical TV, uh, redundant? Uh, well, it's not a physical TV; it's a projector, so it it it, it projects onto a screen on the wall. Um, but yeah, it, it makes it redundant. Every TV in the house, actually, because we have a bedroom TV. If I lived alone, I wouldn't need any TVs. I'd just use this. I also, by the way, wouldn't need any computer screens. So it, it makes all hardware redundant except this one particular device. It makes the, the, the it makes the, the front sound, end. The sound system is redundant. Audio devices are redundant. Um, screens are redundant. Even, uh, you know, at a stretch, you could say mouse and keyboard, although it does actually work better with a with a keyboard and a and a and a trackpad. So, the, is Evan Armstrong's point that this thing is there is no need for a killer app because it's in itself a killer piece of hardware? Yeah, what he calls a killer utility, and he says the same about AI. That you know, if you think of the list of the top fifty things people are doing with AI. Um, the fact that there is a list of 50 and probably a thousand is is the story. You don't need a single killer application. Although, although I do think that ChatGPT's chat interface was the killer app in the sense that it made it accessible through a question yeah, yeah. and answer. And does Evan Armstrong, I assume, coming back to the, the excited man in your AI produced art for the, for the newsletter this week, is Evan Armstrong full of excitement about this? He's celebratory. Yeah, he's an optimist for sure. He's definitely an optimist, and he and he he likes it, and he's characterizing what he thinks it is. That's basically the and he there's no nostalgia for him for the the physical world, the world of immediate the sensory world as opposed to putting these devices between our eyes and the world. Well, I. I don't think he's even framing that conversation. If you if you asked him, you know, would he like to be cut off from the century world permanently, he'd I'm sure he'd say no, like any of us would. But if you compare the Vision Pro to watching a TV, it's a no-brainer. And by the way, thirty-five hundred dollars, the you know, when I first bought a flat-screen TV, it cost more than that. You should have bought two. You could have got one for Jeanne, and then you could have both sat there with these devices, Keith. Yeah, but even then, the streams and are the not. Kids, you could have got four. <laughs> no, what do your boys think of this? By the way, you got three boys, um, teenagers, slightly older, in their in their in their early twenties. Do they put these things on? 
they've all tried it they all think it's amazing but none of them none of them are in a position to buy one they know i'm not going to buy one for them so they their brain kind of flips the switch and they don't lust after it is there a coolness or an uncool factor here are there the 20 somethings i mean some of them can afford it are they buying it or is I it doubt, just guys I, like you i i doubt any of them are buying it because you know the younger you are the more social you are i think and this is essentially not a social device it's a private device so it locks you into your own senses yeah. well lots more on that and what about chen he also has an interesting take andrew chen yeah um, he's, he sees as you say the the end of the mobile S curve and the beginning of the AI one. What's an S curve? So an S curve is a way of characterizing um, the 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 history of a paradigm. So if you think of mobile as a as a specific stage in history that roughly starts in two thousand seven with the iPhone, although some would argue it starts earlier than that, um, but the mass market for mobile certainly starts in two thousand seven and um he's saying it's it's now at the point where the the s which is a, a kind of a up and to the right curve but on an s shape has now peaked and there won't be any more growth in mobile but the ai curve is only at the beginning and 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 um, these s curves are another way of thinking about growth uh, and if you're a venture capitalist growth of value and he's saying that there are still people who will make money from launching mobile apps, but the bar is very high. Whereas if you get into AI, the bar is very low to be, you know, because it's just at the beginning, you can do things that are interesting right away. And so he's basically characterizing the end of an era and the start of a new era, which parallels uh, what, what the previous author was talking about, Evan Armstrong because uh, in a way he's saying it's a new era as well although okay. armstrong's focus on the vision pro how would that fit in with the end of the mobile s curve and the beginning of the ai one i mean vision pro is in parallel to the ai age isn't it yeah he well evan armstrong sees them as two separate things and i think chen would as well he's only focused on ai chen whereas armstrong characterize them as being in the same camp because they're both what he calls killer utilities. What would you say is the quintessential mobile company? I would have thought Facebook probably. Well, also Arm, Qualcomm, Apple, mm. you know. Um, uh, Obviously Apple. Then. Android. Samsung. Samsung for sure, yeah. Uh, uh, and then the networking players, the, the, the Verizons of the world. And then, I mean, obviously for the AI, the earliest AI company you've talked about, this is OpenAI. There are some trying to get from mobile to AI like Google. Yeah. Yeah, well, Google had a terrible week uh, with AI this week um, uh, when it should have been an awesome week. That We've heard that story before. But, you know, we, we really don't know the companies yet. It, it, I was reminded of, um, you remember Macromedia and yeah. Mark Cantor did Macromedia. And, uh, and, you know, at that time, bandwidth wasn't good enough to stream animated video or apps. 
So everything was put on CDs. And the cloud came later and streaming came later. And now everything you could do with Macromedia, you can do um, at the center of the network, streaming to the edge. AI is kind of the opposite. Everything to do with AI it requires big data centers and GPUs that NVIDIA produce, NVIDIA produce. And of course, the big news of the week in, uh, in business terms was, uh, did NVIDIA crack a $2 trillion market cap? Or it certainly it's- It did, yeah, it did. It's gone back a bit now. So NVIDIA is also an, a company of the AI age. Who, who was the dominant chip maker of the mobile age? Was it, it Intel? Uh, it, no, ARM was the architect, uh, but ARM doesn't make chips. It licenses designs. And then everybody who built hardware licensed the ARM designs for their mobile phones, including Apple. So Apple Silicon is actually Apple's version of ARM's designs. And by the way, ARM has doubled in value in the last six months. And then Chen is celebrating this in, in entrepreneurial terms, in terms of the opportunity for innovators. Is that correct? Yeah, he's, he's, he's putting down a, a roadmap to entrepreneurs to focus on AI because the competition is way less. The bar is lower in terms of uh, doing things that no one's done before. And the S-curve has only got an upside to it at this point, probably for the next couple of decades. And of course, not everyone agrees. Uh, your image of uh, for this week was of a a man waking up in the middle of the night, looking very excited. But for many, we're on the verge of a darkness, a new age of darkness. You refer to an essay by Ted Joa, who's a very influential music writer on our state of culture. He, he's uh, Joa is not alone in worrying about the current condition of culture. What does he say in his essay? So he's focused on an equally real trend, which is the trend for human beings to spend a lot of time on short form entertainment, in quotes, largely peer produced, like on TikTok. And he calls it uh, the dopamine culture. He has a very nice graphic that shows for every human endeavor, whether it's sport or gaming, or uh, you know movies that that human beings are gravitating towards small bite-sized chunks that in and of themselves are you know irrelevant from a cultural point of view he calls it the dopamine culture where you just want to get that dopamine hit by laughing or um, screaming at or uh, lusting after whatever it is little piece of morsel if you like of content that you're consuming um and 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 he's characterizing that as um not unlike your book the cult of the amateur andrew i think there's a similarity in a way between his narrative and that book where he's decrying the end of real culture the depth that real culture is associated with is there any truth to this do you think you you know in your editorial that you can have your cake and eat it. You can go on TikTok and then go to the Berkeley Rep at the weekend. Is that what you believe? Well, I, I think what he's saying describes a real set of events, a real set of trends. Um, human beings seem to like, you know, short, funny or interesting snips. Yeah, it's the memification of culture or of the yeah. world. Everything becomes a meme. So people like that. 
But my objection is, I don't think that means they don't like deeper culture. I mean, look at look at the success of some of the movies that were recognized at the BAFTAs last weekend. Uh, the the movies that won are all, you know, independent movies with with super deep narratives. Um, and I, you know, many of the people who like those movies probably also look at TikTok every now and then. So I I, I think that what's happening is culture uh, culture is is um, diversifying in terms of what people like to consume and they've got more choice i do think there's an there's an unanticipated consequence that uh, giola would like which is it means that the the quality bar for movies theater music actually goes up because the time you have to spend on it is less so you're going to be more choosy so i would imagine this has a positive effect on the quality of TV or movies. I mean, Ted Gerardo is a, an old guy who's written a, a classic history of jazz. Is he just another old guy who can't deal with new technology and the cultural ramifications? Every time there's new tech, whether it's television or radio or print or the internet or social media or now AI, you have guys like Ted Jolo who are claiming that it represents the end of culture. The end of the world as we know it. Yeah, I think if it's that binary, then then you'd have to say yes. But I don't, I, you know, and for him, it is actually quite binary. So maybe that is exactly the right characterization of, of him. That said, the trends he's noticing are not false. They're real. Uh, and, and so the question then becomes, what does it mean? Well, you know, when was the last book you read, Keith? You're always telling me you don't have time to read books. You know, I, I a long time ago. I do still buy books, by the way. But the I last century? Them. Have you read a book this century? This century? Oh, definitely. Several, many. But When uh, was the last time you read a, a book cover to cover? I think it was um, uh, that book about the 2008 crash. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the author and the name. Was but that back very, in what, 2010? No, he wrote it later than that but about 2015. And is that because you don't have the time, the patience? You think you can learn about the world from tweets or TikToks? Or well, I read day? substantive internet stuff every day. By the way, I do buy books and I skim them. Uh, like I, I, bought, I bought three or four books around universal basic income and uh, modern monetary theory to understand what was going on. And I, I kind of speed read all of them. So I'm kind of lying when I say I don't read books, but... If you say, am I sitting down in an afternoon and reading a book cover to cover like fiction? Uh, For Us the Living was the last book I did that with. Uh, oh, and Ready Player One I also read. So the state of the culture is dark, Keith. Is, are people waking up in the middle of the night in, in a state of sweat? I think, I think there's a, a sense of despair by intellects who can't really engage with with modern well, for writers filmmakers musicians it's a tough time i mean we've talked about this journalists someone was saying yeah. to me this week that uh they know someone on the pulitzer prize committee for investigative journalism books and there are 50 percent less books this year because they're probably more than 50 percent less investigative journalists and of course the publishing industry is it's in its own crisis a kind of spiraling crisis and if everyone's like you then 
the business is just going to go away. The industry will crash because no one's going to buy these books. Yeah, no, I st I doubt that's going to happen. I, th I, I think people do still buy books and I think people still go watch movies, you know, yeah, yeah, not always good ones. I mean, look at Barbie, the highest growing, grossing movie, movie ever. Oh, Barbie's not a, a bad film. I mean, you may not like it. It's not a bad film. I mean, it's a, in its own way, it's quite a serious film. It is a serious film, yeah, but uh, it's it's evidence of the fact that the world isn't falling, the sky isn't falling. Well, um, another way of looking at it is from our old friend, Professor Galloway, um, Prof Galloway, who, uh, who talks about the... The uh, Giolo talked about the dopamine culture. He talks about the dope uh, impact oh. uh, on uh, online gambling, which is a real thing, particularly in a post-Super Bowl week. Yeah. Yeah, it's a new thing in the States. You and me are both of British origin, and um, we both probably experienced our parents betting on horse races every weekend. I did anyway. Um, so gambling and sport, in, in the UK are very uh, normal. Here, not so much. So suddenly we're starting to see ESPN now has um, a gambling operation. And I think about two thirds of the states, it is now legal to gamble online. Um, and, uh, you know, DraftKings and apps like that are having their heyday because of it. And Galloway is basically pointing to the, the dopamine driven um, sucking of money out of your wallet by bad people who just want you to uh, gamble. Yeah, I mean, you know, my son has a friend, um, a woman, and whenever I see her, she spends, seems to spend all her time talking about, and she gambles on uh, English football. She seems to spend all her time doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. she's interested in the games too, but is this... Is this another generational thing? You know, I think it's a it, it's hope, isn't it? I mean, I remember, I remember my my mum used to go to bingo twice a week and used to bet on horses at the weekend, and she did these things called accumulators, which in America are called something else, where where all the things you predict have to happen for you to win. And, I mean, it's uh, basically the lottery. It's like the lottery. And I remember her anticipation about the possibility of winning brought some light to her otherwise difficult life. And, and, and the, so Galloway's got it right. It is, it is a kind of a dopamine thing. And then you lose. And as a kid, I just observed the losing. So I never really got into gambling. In fact, I went to the other side. I was a bingo caller for a long time, calling numbers out to people losing money. I wonder whether anything's really changed. You talk about in your in your editorial the two alternate universes: one of a, a drug-like addiction to short-form culture and inane culture, and taking risk. But I mean, this was something that Aldous Huxley warned about in the 1930s. I'm not sure any, it was a hundred years ago. Has anything really changed? I mean, is, is, is there, I mean, this is just the digital version of Soma that, uh, that, that Huxley warned us about. To remind me of what Huxley said, because I, I read Huxley. Imagine the world where everyone took something called Soma, which made them cheer. Oh, oh that was the drug. Yeah. And they watched mechanical golf on 
imaginary television. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which isn't that well, different from 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 I'd, I'd X say, or, uh, or or uh, or TikTok. I, I would say that is one side of what is happening. But if you think it's the whole, then you're missing what the future is going to look like. Um, it, it it it's basically it's a longer conversation than we can have on the show, but I'll say this. We live at a time when people are alienated more than ever from their lives. What does and, that mean, alienated from um, They don't get love or an enjoyment out of their existence. And so they take recourse in, in um, private experiences that isolate them from, you know, from all of that. And, um, I, I think that is symptomatic of the time we're living in, which is the end of the post-war boom, a difficult global situation. Which war? The, the post-Second World War 30-year boom in the economy that you mm. and I were born into. I wonder, though, I mean, you're, you, you pick four very good essays and you, you're always putting your fingers on excellent essays. That's why your newsletter is so valuable. I think everyone should subscribe. But isn't that evidence that, okay, we may not have Shakespeare anymore, but we still have thoughtful people like Scott Galloway and Ted Jolo writing interesting pieces? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's why I'm, I, I'm not as pessimistic. I mean, you look at Substack and it's a goldmine of quality writing. Although this week is one of the few weeks you don't have anything about Substack which is even more impressive because they made some announcements and I ignored them. Yeah, well, that's another story, another week. Your startup of the week, it actually touches back on the Galloway piece, Apple Sports. Yep. What, what, why is this interesting? I mean, startup and Apple obviously don't go together, but what is Apple doing with Apple Sports that makes it worthy of, 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 of this enormous uh award keith that has such significance i'm sure that eddie q now is going to be so thrilled he's going to be begging you for more stuff i have a lot of advice for eddie when it comes to sports um um but you know apple doesn't usually do uh point apps apps that are specific to a single thing um unless they're utilities like the calendar or email or a clock um so Apple Sports competes with ESPN directly. And of course, Apple sponsors uh, the MLS, which kicked off this week with Lionel Messi's team winning 2-0. And it looks to me as if... You're the only person in the world who's interested in that. But it looks to me as if Apple is on a journey where it understands the power of live sports to drive uh, consumer experiences. And, you know, uh, uh, live sports is more dopamine heavy than almost any. Yeah, I mean, it's as of gambling. You put together Apple. We began this conversation talking about the Vision Pro. I was just in Mississippi a few weeks ago. We went to a, a very weird casino near the coast. Um, is this new commitment of Apple sports, of Apple to sports, real-time sports information, and their commitment to the Vision Pro, they're not coincidental. We no. will put these devices on and we'll be perpetually in a casino, won't we, Keith? Our own personal casino. 
Well, the, the Apple Sports app, app does include betting odds. So you might surprise, be honest. Surprise, surprise. I mean, that's why most people use it. Why else would you use it? Uh, just to follow your team. But Yeah, but you know that's not true. The vast majority of people are betting. Well, so, but you're right. I, 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 I think that um, it won't be, they're already producing, uh, they shot a movie during the playoffs of the MLS last season using 3D cameras. Um, and they're about to release it on the Vision Pro, which is, uh, by the way, you. I've always thought of this concept, which we talked about called digital seats, which I imagined as picking a seat in the stadium. Mm. They've redefined it as meaning pick any vantage point, including flying above the game. Uh, so you can look at the game from any vantage point in a, in a kind of 180 degree bubble, if you will. Um, and, and I do believe that sports is going to be the killer uh, app to disagree with our friend Evan uh, that will bring lots of people to the Vision Pro. Because Unfortunately, quite literally, given the impact of gambling on people, it will be in some ways the killer app. So just explain what Apple Sports does. It competes directly, as you say, with ESPN. What is Apple doing that isn't currently in the market? Nothing. It's just, it's just, um, it's launching an app that has a narrow purpose initially, which is to drive people to subscribe to Apple TV. Are they going? Aren't they going to get into trouble from the regulators when? Uh, isn't this a classic example where ESPN will sue Apple and say at the Apple Store, w w you don't see us, you only see the the Apple Sports app. It's interesting because they made a decision which is um, not totally unique, but fairly unique for Apple. This app has to be uh, opted into. You have to download it and go and search for it and find it. It isn't going to become a default. So what's the point of it for them? Where's the business? The business is that they've invested by some accounts a billion dollars into Major League Soccer. And they're looking... Right. And it costs about $40 a season to subscribe to Major League Soccer. For that, you see all the games. And I think they're using the app as a driver of potential subscribers into the Apple TV universe. You didn't, you didn't respond to my rather barbed remark, Keith, about Major League Soccer in the US, you being the only person watching. Is there really a market for this? I'm actually pretty surprised that there is. Um, you know, the better teams in Major League Soccer are getting crowds of between 40 and 60,000 people showing up, which mean, mean, means it's bigger than basketball and baseball. Is it sort of, is it getting, is it getting appropriated or embraced by different cultural communities in Southern California or Texas or South Florida? Um, I can tell you that the earthquakes, San Jose earthquakes, where I had a season ticket a couple of years, it's about 50 50 um, Latino and um, white. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, that probably is about right. I think there may be some places like Miami where it's more heavily Latino. I have to admit, I'd rather look at TikTok than the Major League Soccer in America, but maybe that's... The quality of the game is poor, but if you're an American, I don't know, I don't know, you know, it's probably better than the Mexican League. 
it's uh, yeah, we're gonna lose a lot of Mexican viewers, Keith. What a terrible thing to say. <laughs> well, if you're Mexican, I didn't say that. That was Keith here. Finally, and you're always a good sport here, Keith, because your day job is as the CEO of um signal rank and you don't always stuff stuff about the markets and investment and venture capital in but your x of the week is it's by one of your old friends packy mccormack who often pops up on this uh it's an interesting uh x he says uh i'm quoting him here venture capital gets a lot of shit, but venture capital rocks what's packy saying that's so interesting this week Keith? So he, he basically wrote a review of the performance of venture capital as an asset class compared to others. It, it, it's a Substack newsletter that he writes, and this was a tweet to promote it. And he goes into a, a lot of detail about the impact of venture capital on uh, the future. He doesn't really focus on individual fund returns. He focuses on the tolerance for losing money being the price you pay for changing the world and and you end up making money as well so very different from your mother working in the food factory in scarborough and then wasting her money on bingo way better exactly way better well what's the difference though because most people even in venture lose Mo most form of gambling still isn't it oh it's definitely a form of gambling but the proportion of winners compared to gambling is much higher and the amount of the total winnings are bigger than the total money staked, which is different than gambling. And what's happened, Keith? You used to rhapsodize about venture capital becoming more democratic so that women like your mother would be able to get a bit of the action. Is that happening or is still, according to Packy, he talks about uh, venture capital being the best asset class there is. Is that because... It's still controlled by the uh, the Andreessons and the the Fred Wilsons of the world. Yeah, I, my my view on democratization is slightly coming from a different angle, um, and it doesn't contradict this. It, it it's an adjacency. It's not a replacement. Um, venture capital basically is smart individuals investing in other smart individuals using their experience to allocate the capital and that probably doesn't go away what 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 the bigger question is who benefits from the growth in value that accrues and so far at least uh, retail investors normal people they can only invest after a company becomes public and so most of the growth has already happened by then um my view is that that line will get pushed backwards by various mechanisms by various people single rank is one of them but there's others well i was going to throw you the best bone you're ever going to get on a friday afternoon uh you mentioned signal rank you're the founder and ceo uh is signal rank the killer app of the of uh of the venture economy keith it, it 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 you know no but it's a very no i gave you you've got to say yes to that no i because i don't think it is a killer app it's a platform that's going to make venture investing a lot more predictable and what's the killer app then of venture or is there one the killer app of venture money <laughs>